Hello everyone, um, I'm Bola Adegbulu. Welcome to another episode of the Globalization of Entrepreneurship podcast. We speak with founders and operators, investors and enablers of great companies across the fastest growing emerging markets, specifically Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia, Latin America, India and Pakistan. My number one goal is to share cross-country insights and help us all raise our game globally. I'm incredibly excited about my guest today. Um, my guest is Ruben Sanchez Souza. Ruben is a serial entrepreneur, investor, and mentor with unique international experience, both um, within Latin America and earlier earlier on in his career within Asia. He's currently the founder and CEO of his new venture, Sustances. Prior to this, he co-founded and exited Visor, a fintech company, and was a mentor and investor at 21212, a leading accelerator in Brazil. Before this, Ruben worked as, as a principal within a, a venture capital firm and uh, international expansion in China. Super, super excited to have you on, Ruben. There's so much to unpack there and looking forward to exploring your founding experience um, and perspective of the Latin American ecosystem, having been an investor and mentor where you've seen so many companies' journeys. So with that, um, we will jump, jump straight in. Um, Ruben, thank you, thank you for, for joining on this podcast. Um, great to have you on um i guess very quickly just give us an overview of of your background and how you found found your way um into into startups well first thank you for uh inviting me to such a, an interesting podcast and i'm uh, i'm hoping that whatever i share here is going to be useful to other entrepreneurs and investors in this developing markets uh, following your your guideline here of an international podcast um, so, the uh, question regarding my experience uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur, um, well, it all started, first venture was actually in China. Uh, I had just um, uh, left a, a corporate job. I was leading the market there for a beer company, uh, Grupo Modelo, for those who like Corona, that was my thing. Uh, and I decided to, to create a, a company that would, you know, connect um, the economies between um, Asia procurement and other sources of, of uh, required goods. So it was all about technology of monitoring the prices, monitoring the quality control, making it all available in a, in a more transparent way. So that the whole aspect of, okay, I'm, I'm buying from abroad. Is that going to be a, an issue about not understanding who I'm dealing with? Um, that those aspects of, of transparency were all about my first startup and, and it was bootstrapped. Well, bootstrapped in the sense that I, I, I did a bit of what you told me you did as well. In an occasion, I put my own funds with a partner, uh, a, a Spanish fellow, uh, worked in a grad, MBA, was in China also for a couple of years before, and and uh, and we built WSP, um, and it was quite an, an adventure. Um, now, 2008 came about, the world shook, you know, like everything changed. Suddenly, the prices of the, the RMB was now devaluated 30%, and the world was oh, all going crazy. So many of the things that we were doing sort of just halted. It was uh, quite an impact. Um, but it was a, a, an adventure that led us to understand a lot of what working capital is about, uh, how you manage uh, short-term cash when you're dealing with paying employees and your contracts are long-term and could be delayed, uh, how dangerous it is to not have uh, uh, you know, smaller deals that you know, pay the bills uh, versus others that are yeah, those things that make you great and big and large, but you know. If you're not allowed to catch them, you're not going to get them. Um, plus the dynamics of partnership. Also, you know, my partner had a baby in the middle of the game. 
um, changes the entire risk perspective. Um, so you, you can't really ask someone with suddenly a, an obligation that is way, way superior to anything you could possibly imagine to have the same, you know, attitude towards risk that he had going forward when, mm. when it wasn't the case. So interesting, interesting dynamics. Mm -hmm. So that first journey in China concluded in that, uh, that that company basically collapsed. It didn't, didn't survive that crisis. And, uh, and I was invited by some other entrepreneurs, uh, a group of Dutch people uh, who had created one of the most powerful technologies leveraging map technologies uh, that were very primitive at that time. We were the ones helping map China, for example, in many uh, circumstances <laughs> before moving Google or any other Navtech or all the others uh, could, could ride uh, around. And we were monitoring point of sale uh, with uh, incredible dynamics on, on the intelligence of what was happening in the stores and stuff like this. And that was a beautiful company that invited me to lead the growth part of this venture and, um, and to help uh, procure uh, venture capital for it, <laughs> uh, which we never did require because we grew so fast. Okay. Uh, and it was such a successful venture. Uh, we had Unilever work it, uh, in Asia and then suddenly implemented in LATAM. We had Nestle and Pepsi and Wyeth and all those great names. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it became a success. So actually that venture got sold to the largest mm -hmm. uh, media group in the world uh, one year after I, I, I came in. <laughs> and, and that was a successful exit, which made me uh, understand that there's also some dynamics of businesses that you know are just hyper accelerated and incredible to, to work with. And there the challenges were all about, okay, you're doing global deals, and at the same time, you're delivering local, uh, local uh, strategies. So, how do you deal with you know from Chinese employees to Latin American employees to uh, to having a, um, a dynamic where you also it was not so much about hiring a product people. Thank God we had a very good team, and that was solid for most of the technology. But we did have to hire a lot of uh, on people work in the fields and. and so that, those dynamics of, of, of having to staff very fast and, and uh, manage growth uh, as you expand processes, uh, that, that was quite novel to me. I, I had not ever felt what it felt like to, um, to be in a situation where you're constantly on demand for um, incorporating new people and you have to maintain a culture where they can just arrive and feel comfortable right away on what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was quite exciting. But the, in, in that one, I learned more than I could say I, I actually delivered because I was surrounded by amazing uh, entrepreneurs as well. Fantastic, now, fantastic. After, yeah, yeah. after that, I went to Brazil. Uh, so that, that was the time where Brazil was happening. There was mm -hmm. the Christ uh, Redeemer flying on top of the Corcovado <laughs> Mountain on the cover of the, uh, of the Economist. So it was the, the time for, for Brazil. And, and I arrived thinking, well, what am I going to do here? I have probably some, mm -hmm. some new ventures and mm -hmm. stuff. And I met a very successful entrepreneur here. Um, at the time, it was called the Midas of of Brazil, his name was Ike Batista, and, and basically with yes. him, I, I, he was doing business between China and, and Brazil, so I, I really wanted to help. Um, eventually, that business never concluded, but he introduced me to a group of uh, companies, uh, a venture fund. It was mm -hmm. uh, probably the first venture capital fund in Brazil, IDS. Wow. wow. Uh, quite an interesting um, structure because it, it had listed itself. Instead of listing each individual company, it actually listed the fund in the, in the Bovespa market, in the Novo Mercado which is a, sort of like the NASDAQ um, <laughs> of Brazil. And, and there it was a, a very different adventure, a very uh, old fund, meaning that many of the investments uh, had diluted some of the entrepreneurs to a certain degree, where <laughs> ownership was an issue in terms of motivation. Uh, and some ventures were growing and some had flat, uh, you know, they, they weren't necessarily performing as much. Um, so there was a, a, a time where you were more into a corrective mode. What do I do um, to either sell to either ramp up, to either uh, 
restructure. Uh, so, so it was a very different stage of investment to the mm-hmm. typical one of you know the glorious days where you're just putting money into new things that you still you know are believing about the future. Here you're talking about you know eight seven year old ventures that um, that were some of the precursors of many things that were being done in Brazil in terms of from fiber optics to um, payments to uh, uh, price comparisons to to many interesting things. Um, so that was my adventure as as more of a hands-on principle, very very mm-hmm. operational, very much into helping the entrepreneurs. Um, bridge the situation pre-exit. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was a different stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, uh, after that, the fund divested many of the companies. So eventually mm-hmm. I, I left that fund and I went to San Francisco to view uh, mm-hmm. to the vibe of San Francisco mm-hmm. and, and the whole spirit of innovation. And, and I mean, I, I took the excuse of just taking some courses at Stanford with, with the, I mean, it was basically just a reason to be there and, and, um, and talk to everyone. I mean, that was my thing. I talked to every single entrepreneur of a company that I admired. And, um, and it was amazing. I mean, very much so that uh, everybody first wanted to, uh, was willing to share. Uh, <laughs> and that was so amazing. No one kept their experiences or their thoughts or their ideas <laughs> to themselves because they knew that, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. What it really takes is a lot of execution. And, <laughs> and, and it's not about not debating, but rather trying to find a smart answer to things that, uh, that should happen. So um, that was a wonderful experience and very experienced people. Um, so it gave me a, an understanding of what could be done on the space of fintech. And that's mm-hmm. what led to Visor. Mm-hmm. Visor mm-hmm. is, is basically the, the result of going back to Latam mm-hmm. with a vision of many interesting business models that were, you know, cracking in, in the U.S. I, I love the idea of um, helping SMEs survive the working mm-hmm. capital crunch that I lived in China. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, this cannot happen to others. It happened to me. How do I help others not live the situation? So how to finance receivables, how to advance money from your clients. Uh, that was a very much something in my head that would never leave me because uh, mm-hmm. I, I knew that was important for a company. Um, and I, I, I had met people from Credit Karma, for example. And I, I, I okay. love the way that by giving something, you would get so much back in terms of intelligence. Uh, mm-hmm. In this case, the, the FICO score and then you would be able to really recommend in a smart way what they should be doing in terms of other financial products. Um, and I love the, the digitalization of, of, of applications of, for credit. I thought credit should be easier to apply for. And it is ridiculous that it, it's so cumbersome. And, and uh, so the analytics and the application for credit should be something that everybody should be, you know, should have their own identity in, regarding credit. And th- those were three thoughts in my mind, working capital, the idea of give something to understand better how to recommend uh, in terms of data orientation. And finally, this notion of, of, um, of, of provide the, 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 the right analytics capabilities. These were things that were the theme of Pfizer. And that's what we built. We built a company that eventually uh, became, uh, well, I, I would say the precursor of the utilization of a wonderful data source, which is open government. Mm-hmm. Open government is a movement in the, throughout the world. The OCDC mm-hmm. has promoted it a lot. And you mm-hmm. see it in open health, open fiscal, um, uh, open banking. All those mm-hmm. movements are all about how repositories of data that mm-hmm. are owned by the client. The client owns his data, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's, uh, he has the right to ask for it back. Mm-hmm. So if it's being stored in a public repository, but it's private and the client ha- can get it back, how can you use that as a way to, to, to reach consistent data sets? Mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. a, a beautiful thing. How can any company have the same equivalent data set so that mm-hmm. you can do algorithms and run them uh, mm-hmm. and find that uh, you know, everybody's talking the same language and you could do 
small, medium, uh, large companies, one single analysis, one single mm -hmm. processing, uh, and and generate information. So that that was that was something we leveraged a lot and uh, so, ended up supplying. Yeah. So I guess just just so to understand, I guess from 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 Visor, the product was essentially an analytical platform that allowed you to assess the credit worthiness of um, small medium uh, small medium businesses. Um, I guess firstly is that was that the notion of, of visor uh, and secondly who who was the customer um, because i guess the smes are the one providing the data i guess but were they the customer um who where did the revenue come from in terms of in terms of visor yeah well visor was a, a hybrid of two models it was the model you just described an analytics platform and mm -hmm. it was also a working capital finance platform for advancing uh, receivables or paying accounts payable with credit <laughs> so um the, the, the essence of who was the client for the analytic model, um, the clients were the banks or the corporations that wanted to understand the essence. Okay. So they were the ones who paid for a processing of, okay, I will gather the data from this SME from very reliable sources. I will standardize the way I do the credit assessment and I will mm -hmm. provide the APIs with the information we need. And that mm -hmm. was basically a powered by engine inside the origination processes of banks and, and corporations where they, they would just ask the SME to, uh, to provide those credentials and I will be doing those um, analysis in the background and providing the service um, as one component of the origination. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the, the banks or the corporations were our clients there. Now, on the other hand, um, when it came to working capital finance, there it was more the, the SME. So the SME, which had already done his analysis, suddenly found himself or herself in a platform where they mm -hmm. could see all their invoices, uh, mm -hmm. all the receivables real time, um, and they could choose to finance them. They could mm -hmm. choose to advance them or, or, or use uh, financing instruments, credit cards, payments to, 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 to manage the working capital. So mm -hmm. in that situation, the client was the SME. Okay, very, very interesting. Um, I guess what was, what was the, what was, it, it's actually a very unique journey because you have, I'm guessing you have large scale enterprise B2B sales and B2B partnerships, as well as, you know, working with SMEs in terms of bringing SMEs um, on board on, on the platform so it was i guess it was a it was almost like a, a you know a b2b marketplace um because you had to, you had the big you know large enterprises and then you, you have smes you know that's a, it seemed like a very um very complex business to to run and, and scale and i'm sure there's a lot of insights in that journey um what what was your what i guess i think you've spoken about the inspiration around the idea um in terms of you know going back to your um, experience um, when you you know running the business in China. Um, what was the first six months of that journey like? Um, how did you fund it during that first six months? Um, do you remember? Do you remember that sort of first six months of that we can? Um, I guess entrepreneurs can really understand. Was that initial critical um, six months, and what did that look like? Sure, sure. Uh, well, the first six months of Visor were. Um... Right. I, I think I was very fortunate. Uh, mm -hmm. I had come back from San Francisco, as I mentioned, um, to Mexico, and I found an ecosystem that was very much flourishing. It was uh, the beginning of a great spree of, of funding from venture capital uh, firms that were not there before, and suddenly they were sprouting like all over the place. Um, and, and what I found was people that trusted me very early on and said, you know, you sound like someone who has both the experience of investing and of running a business. Mm -hmm. So um, show us what you want to do. And they were the ones pro provoking of, can you bring us something that we can finance? Uh, mm -hmm. And that was when I was uh, became an EIR, just like you are now. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, and that fund um, was very, very, um, it's called OVP, a great fund, great people. 
Antonia, uh, Federico Antonia and Fernando Lelo uh, de la Rea. Uh, those, those guys, they, they did something very magical. They, they, they told me, you know, if you bring the right idea, we will present it and, and, and seek funding for it in the committee. Um, okay. It sounds obvious. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's what everybody knows that, what, that can happen. But when someone tells you that, it, it creates this incredible sense of, you can do it, you know. It's, uh, mm -hmm. you, you will get the funding, right? So, mm -hmm. so that was great. And um, so those first six months were about, first, the, the funding came on, on the PowerPoint still with okay. uh, a couple of MOUs uh, from, from the uh, respective banks. And it was a two-stage process. It wasn't a single, okay, we presented it, it was fine. So I presented to the committee uh, a business plan that included the definition of me as a lender. So I, mm -hmm. I, I thought we should be holding the balance sheet so that we mm -hmm. can accelerate the, the, the component of uh, working capital financing. Uh, mm -hmm. But the committee said, no, it's better to have something that is a pure tech play. So I, I reimagined that uh, venture with a, a more of a marketplace design, just like you mm -hmm. described. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and yes, it added complexity, but it also made it very light in terms of it was tech. It was a pure tech play. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that was also quite exciting because I had uh, found a couple of business partners to run this venture that were awesome um, entrepreneurs. Uh, well, one of them from Silicon Valley, that when I told them that we were, for every dollar we gave uh, of credit or uh, helped credit, uh, for SMEs, we would impact in $5 the economic activity of the country. He was like, well, that is what matters. It's not about yeah. you know, sending a groceries just 15 minutes faster. It's, it's about um, doing this. Like he was referring to the fact that there is some, sometimes in Silicon Valley, uh, an overdoing of simple things. You know? mm -hmm, you're, you're, you're tackling more deep problems that uh, affect society in a, in a radical way. And if you mm -hmm. make it, you make an impact right away. It's, a, it's, um, it's very very exciting in that sense, not easier, but it's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, so the first six months were that, we, 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 that presentation for the funds was a, basically a two month delay between the first committee and the second. We got the funding, reach out to the two um, co-founders, one for finance, the other one for, for IT, uh, hiring the first three employees, getting to our, our um, working MVP, and uh, most important, uh, bringing something to the first big corporate client, client that was gonna uh, help us introduce the product and the first side of the bank client was we were trying to bridge the first the proposition of working capital finance not analytics as a separate thing rather do the whole bundle so it was um it was a challenge corporate sales you know are very slow uh, mm -hmm. even though they tell you let's do it their timings are just never the same as yours so mm -hmm. suddenly you're starting to say hey you told me that four months ago we're still not <laughs> moving what's wrong with you and um uh, and uh, and I discovered that banks were basically back then and even today, they're just not designed for change. And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so it's actually the opposite, right? The, the mm -hmm. core of the design of a financial institution is to preserve good processes. Mm -hmm. So uh, the notion of changing them is materially a little bit against their nature. Mm -hmm. so, um, so anyway, uh, interesting first six months journey. Thank you. So you, you mentioned co-founders. How did you, who are the co-founders and how did you, uh, what was your process of finding them? Because obviously, you, you know, you've, you've been experienced before. You've been in a co-founding relationship before. Um, you've had a chance to, you know, um, go to Silicon Valley, meet, meet a bunch of people. Um, one, how did you how did you choose those co-founders? Um, and, and you know, walk me through your process. Were there people that you've known in the past? Um, how did you get to conviction uh, and convince them to come on this journey uh, with you? Let's see. Um... First, I think in mentally, uh, uh, in, in my case, I, I, 
And I think I've replicated that in any other venture I've done. Uh, I'm, I'm more of like the guy who has a vision for what's the product or the, the service going to be. And, and I can sort of project a little bit of what are the needs in terms of human capital for, for that thing to happen. So once you have that in your mind, the, the buckets of, let's say, I need someone with this and this profile to help me, start becoming something that you now start screening on everybody you talk to. <laughs> so okay. everybody is a potential candidate or, or if you're imagining among all your friends and all the people you've ever met, you're screening for that. And, um, and you know, I started by just calling the people I thought had the right credentials. Uh, and, and it wasn't the first calls that got me to the first, uh, to my two co-founders. Uh, co it was, uh, it was three exercises to get to the IT uh, uh, partner. And it was, uh, a lucky strike when it came to Francisco, the guy who was uh, all about credit models. And mm -hmm. so with, with the first, uh, with IT and data, basically my search was all about who among my, my past experiences was that awesome person on data and let me talk to them. Let me mm -hmm. talk, if they're not interested, maybe they know someone that could be interested and then you okay. start going into this progression of finding incredible people through incredible people. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and how do you inspire them? I mean, you inspire them just by being yourself and telling them how excited you are with the vision that you have. And if mm -hmm. that vision makes sense to people, mm -hmm. I don't know. There is some incredible chemistry that happens when there's a, it's like a match in, 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 a, in, a, in something that's ready to, to, to catch fire. And mm -hmm. um, if you can produce that excitement and it mm -hmm. lands in the people that want to make a change mm -hmm. and you structure it in a way that they can see that this is not just a, a spree of okay, he's excited about it, but maybe he'll be not be excited about it tomorrow. When they see absolute focus, you know, obsession mm -hmm. in your eyes and the way you conduct yourself and the way you continuously learn and the way you keep them updated about, you know, I discovered this and I'm doing this angle and stuff like this. All of mm -hmm. that really excites people because they mm -hmm. see, well, maybe this drive will get us to a, an incredible result. Um, obviously, once you're, you're getting funded, also it helps, right? It, helps. Uh, mm -hmm. it materializes the fears of people of maybe not having the strength. Mm -hmm. to, to join a journey like this. Uh, mm -hmm. There may be incredible people that will just not be able to make the jump because of the mm -hmm. risk aversion um, that, that, that it's facing. Them. So if you can give them some degree of stability, mm -hmm. uh, it helps. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, I've, I've always screened for three things. I've, I've screened for passion. So if the mm -hmm. idea resonates, there's passion and they can, you can feel that they'll make it their own and mm -hmm. that you're really not having them follow your dream, but rather there is a dream that they choose to follow with you. Okay. Um, and, and, and that is interesting because that, that will drive them as much as they drives you. Um, if they're following you, it's, 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 it's not ideal because, you know, in any moment of weakness where they will not necessarily be there to, to make your own mo motion, they will be waiting for you to make the, mo the, the how to move the engine. And, and that is not fast enough when you really want a, a partnership. Interesting. Um, second thing I screen for is uh, the moments in the life of the person. Um, <laughs> For example, I told you my first partner when he had a baby and all that, that how much that changed. So I really look, I mean, I cannot anticipate anything, you know, sure. but you can more or less find the circumstances that make something like this feasible because it takes, it's a long journey to make a uh, and, uh, and mentally you need to be in that space where the resources that you're going to be earning at the early moments of the company are not going to start causing friction on your day-to-day -day life, whether it's because mm -hmm. you have children and you cannot afford mm -hmm. to pay their schooling with the earnings mm -hmm. that you make, or whether you're, you're about to, to maybe um, expand family, or whatever it is that you're doing, and mm -hmm. you, you need to be able to be comfortable for some period of time with mm -hmm. lower income. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. 
and and that is important because um, if you are then you can you can hang on you, you, i mean mm -hmm. the, the other things motivate you and, and you don't stress and also the motivation of the right moment is also what do they want just a career upgrade i'm here to transition to my next project a couple of years here i put it in there that is not founding mentality that is grateful mm -hmm. for, for maybe early team or at some point great people in the team that may want to just join you for a while and then move on that that is fine i don't see any problem with that uh, in later stages of the or, or, or the but the founding team cannot think like mm -hmm. that the founding team is is um has to believe that they can execute all the way through it and all the way through it means that an equal understanding of for how long and to what size of exit and with what size of, uh, of upside all those things need to be mentally put into numbers you cannot just go in thinking oh it's going to be billions if it's billions we'll say it be billions but if it's going to be just x millions that number should be known among the partners very well and anything above it is great but that one is the one you're fighting for, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and that is also the cost of opportunity and notion of this is years of my life should generate me this versus what I'm doing. This is, this is very practical. Some people think that it's not easy to assess, but it can. Just with a little mm -hmm. insistence, you can get to the numbers. Mm -hmm. And the third criteria of finding a partner is, is obviously a, a, a common culture. Um, there are a few things in terms of values of what you respect other organizations to have that should be held by the partners in equal way. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't believe in meetings that have, you know, very detailed uh, notes and that, that you can really trust that people will execute mm -hmm. on those things, mm -hmm. or if you don't believe in, in proactivity, or if you, it, they're not ethereal, like abstract concepts. Values are very practical things. You do them every day and, and, and people understand the value of the things. If, if they really are the essence to building an organization, um, then as a founding partner, you need to know how to abstract that essence. Mm -hmm. And when you agree to it, you don't just agree on it theoretically. I wrote them down and published them. You agree to them in such a way that um, you, you practice them on, on every meeting, you practice them on every interaction that you do, and, and practice them on recruiting. And, and that, is, that is hard. That is really mm -hmm. hard to find. But uh, when it comes to growing the company, if there are digressions there, it's going to fracture eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really brilliant framework there. Um, you know, I love the level of detail um, that you that you took into, um, uh, you know, meeting a co-founder and recruiting a co-founder. So, um, yeah, I'm even I'm learning um, as well in terms of in terms of that. Perhaps I, I wasn't as sort of rigorous in my approach as 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 you have been. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for that for that for that information there. Um, I guess. Um, you know, you you ran a, a visor and you grew it, and then you, you exited it at, at 2020, 2021. Um, what would you say? What would you say were the most? Um, well, I guess one. What, what were the what were the most important lessons um, you learned during that journey? What things did you feel that you 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 did in a world class way that your team was really exceptional at? And then second, we'll talk about what were the challenging things um, that you had in the journey. But let's talk about what were the, the highlights and you know, uh, lessons and, and, and things that you did exceptionally well during that journey. Well, the first lesson is that, for example, my role with regards to the team was basically to, to set very clear guidelines to what needed to be executed, uh, <laughs> as opposed to be ideating uh, many things all over the place. So the best moments of the company were where the foundations of what needed to be built were so clearly laid out that you could let people shine while they you know, deliver on those things. Um, and the role of the management becomes maintaining and repeating what is that vision continuously. 
well, this is what we want to attain. This is how you measure that it's really <laughs> happening. This is what we expect the client to be using, um, and 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 clearing the way and making sure that they have you know the resources or the communication is flowing among the parties so that the vision remains clear and the execution can, can shine. Those are the best moments of an organization when when you really feel that everybody is delivering their maximum because it's all about uh, you know realizing my contribution to this big vision, but then. Um, if you fail to, to keep that clarity, if you do too many things at once, which we did for a long time in the, in the beginning, um, yes, people fight and they fight hard, uh, but the reward of the self-fulfilling prophecy of, okay, I'm selling, I'm clients happy, uh, now I'm selling faster and everything seems to be flowing better, that, that self-reward doesn't come early enough uh, and then people may not get motivated or, or, or things may, may, may not go as well. So um, the magic comes when the, when the system starts rewarding you and everybody feels happier because things to be, seem to be better every day. Um, so that's that's the best moment of, of a company in my point of view. And we had it uh, in the last periods of Pfizer. Um, what else? I mean, other great moments. The investors, obviously getting investors to believe in you, <laughs> it's a great sensation. You know, it feels like, okay, wow, they're seeing that we can do things. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey of, for example, getting an American Express uh, mm-hmm. to invest uh, in our company, uh, the fund, obviously feels like, holy cow, now I have a world-class company in my cap table and, mm-hmm. and they really believe what we're delivering as a service to their, to their firm and, and you get invited to all those conferences abroad and all that stuff and you start chatting with other people that are very high-caliber entrepreneurs. It feels good. Now, the reality is that in order for that feeling to continue, you, you definitely need to continue to deliver more and more value. You can't <laughs> stay seated and, and deliver something. And, and it's hard, right? Because you have so many clients now that you, you can you still just give perfect service or great service or innovative service to one if you're trying to standardize and go for many. <laughs> it's a tough uh, measure, but it's interesting, a feeling. Um, I guess those two are the highlights of uh, investors believing and then the team <laughs> executing brilliantly. Um, <laughs> and and I guess, what, what was the thing that you, Thing that you did exceptionally well. I think you've seen a number of different journeys, um, both as a mentor and investor, um, and and you know and and VC. What what in advisor's journey? What did you think as an organization you guys did? You know, at a really really high level in comparison to what did you place the most emphasis on in comparison to other companies um, that you've seen? You know, given within your your experience. Well, when you're asking me what did we do exceptionally well. Uh, I mean, you can always do better in many things, so it's, it's hard to say which one was exceptionally well. But I, th- I think that for what this is worth, because it doesn't really mean that we did the best as a business, but when it came to do the best of innovation, I think we were incredibly focused on, on materializing and bringing to market some of the most uh, frictionless ways of doing onboarding, some of the most powerful processing ways of doing risk analysis, some of the... Like, we just ask ourselves, why should it not be this way? I mean, when mm-hmm. it came to risk analysis, if we have the data of a company every day, shouldn't it be like companies should be evaluated for risk at any point in time? It shouldn't be mm-hmm. just one thing that you do at the beginning and then that. So we thought that way and we never saw why it shouldn't be that way. And mm-hmm. we developed uh, things to do it that way. And, and that's incredible when you, you just said that that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. And you just don't see how it could not be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with payments. like. B2B payments on the, on the financing of invoices. 
We never thought that uh, there would be only one way to secure the collateral on, on an invoice. We thought, you know, things need to be registered. Some things need to be a trespass. Some things need to be just available for reference. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's make sure that the, the, the logs and the dynamics of storage of the data are good. Let's guarantee that the collateral can be present at any point in time, but let's make it easy to flow. So th those kinds of things, uh, I, I think that, that those were real innovations because we, I mean, I, I go back and now I hear all this, you know, they now pay me later embedded mm -hmm. fine. A mm -hmm. bunch of stuff that we had to sort of invent at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't there before, but we mm -hmm. were doing it just because it made sense. But mm -hmm. there was no infrastructure to support it. I mean, there were no digital accounts to use a wallet to intermediate mm -hmm. a payment to use, but, mm -hmm. but we created some of them with things mm -hmm. that were for other purposes. There was a virtual account that was used for procurement, uh, not procurement, for dispersion of, of payments to your suppliers. And mm -hmm. we used that account to become a, a sort of like a, a a settlement chamber, an electronic settlement chamber to, to register uh, mm -hmm. or collect payments for invoice financing. Why? Well, because, you know, that's what we needed. Uh, now, obviously, there are other ways to do it. But it, those innovations were amazing, I think. And I guess, how did you how did you create that culture? Because uh, that obviously would come from the management team in terms of what you guys focused on, what you guys place emphasis on. How did you create that culture to enable that, that sort of you know, excellence of innovation and, and pushing the, the boundaries on what people thought was possible. How do you create that culture? Um, well, we, I think when we discuss things, we always discuss them as what's need, what, what's the client need or what, what, what we want to achieve in terms of the essential aspect of things. So when, when you're going for the essence, the rest is just like remove it and get to what you need to do. So those discussions were always like that. Um, and we also read a lot. I mean, I, I liked uh, our Friday morning meetings, uh, mm -hmm. just, uh, um, a book or uh, a video or something to inspire uh, what we call the brain book session. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it was all about associating thoughts from great leaders. You know, mm -hmm. let's apply design thinking or let's apply complex systems or let's apply uh, the security by design. Or let, We would take a, 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 an aspect of that from good literature or, or someone that was speaking about it and we would relate to it on what we were doing that, that, that week or that month or, or what was happening on the product. So there was always a, a theme that could be associated to what we were developing that pushed the boundaries to, are we really designing for platforms that can be agent-driven, for example? Uh, or are we in the terms of, of security? Is this security designed from essence? I mean, where, where is, are we just protecting or are we designing for protection? Th those things, um, we were always sort of provoking that kind of thinking and, and I think you know, not everybody in the organization goes to the meetings and all that, but the people that do, um, I think it opens their minds. It, uh, it allows them to, uh, maybe not at, that, not at that time, they don't necessarily associate it immediately, but when <laughs> they do go into another meeting with the squad and, and suddenly it, it generates the debate of, shouldn't we be thinking about it from the perspective mm -hmm. of, of a principle of design here? Or, and uh, and, and that, that is very, very powerful when it comes to innovation. And I guess was was that intentional, like an initiative? It was an intentional initiative that you and the, the rest of your co-founders created and instituted, or was that did that just happen? Kind of, you know, um, you know, as as things evolved, did you did you come up with and say, actually, we need to be great at innovation, and this is how we're going to do it, um, uh, or or how how did you come about with that? Because that's really interesting and, and unique um, of, of all the journeys that I've, I've heard of. I think as, as a stop management, you're always thinking what is going to help uh, the company communicate and, and, um, and have a common uh, understanding of the problems. Um, 
So it's it's more about let's try to do things. I mean, we, we could have taken many more best practices from other organizations and tried to replicate them. It's not that we didn't look at what the market was doing and stuff, but it was more again about we, we know that people work better when they're communicating with each other. We know that um, that sometimes in order to design innovation, you need to, to think of the principles that you're applying. So we, we do have some interest in people trying to see a situation and apply the principles so that that, that helps them design uh, simpler and more beautiful things. Um, so it was more of a, we needed to implement, and it wasn't just one attempt, we did many things. I mean, the books are the ones that lasted for throughout, but uh, we tried the, the workshops, we tried uh, the, you know, sessions on, you know, within the squads, we, we did divide the concept of also uh, uh, layers for, for debate that are called, I, actually, I forget, um, there's a, a thematic aspect of, of you, you put together the people that are all going to think about, for example, UX. And you just, they're the guilds, sorry. You, you, you created that guild. So we tried many things um, <laughs> to get that, that knowledge of um, we're not just doing what everybody's doing, we're doing things that are essentially better for the client and applying principles of whether it's uh, security, design, UX, or whatever, to, to get to what we want to do. So, but it wasn't one single formula. I wish I could tell you that we knew exactly what we were doing. Um, no, we were just caring for our people, I guess. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And I guess let's talk about let's talk about kind of the the challenges. What what do you feel? I guess in your category, I guess um, in in the fintech space at that time, what were the unique challenges um, that you faced uh, as a as a category? So not specific to to your business, but actually you know creating a a B two B focused fintech company. Um, in in, um, in 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 Mexico um, at, at the time, what were the unique challenges that that you faced? There were many and very very big ones. Um, first was the the speed of the banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, financial institutions, given the mandate we got from our VCs of not using our own capital but rather uh, you know being a tech platform, this was a play that was ahead of its time because um, right now you can see many infrastructure as a service place in the fintech space. Many things, you know, they just provide you that particular layer of the payment processing or that particular layer of the, inf- of the information strapping or scrapping. Now there's a lot of components that you could just, you know, yeah. amalgamate and make a solution. Back then, no. So there was a lot of things to be built. And in particular, the, the, the sourcing of the money to be able to test a lot of the solutions we had was subject still to the innovation speed of the banks. So what it was the use of us having incredible technology that would take a long time for the bank to try to you know adjust the criteria on the on whether it's the the, the risk on the, on the on the product level design whether it was the just the policy of origination with less documents uh, whatever we were uh, doing it took forever for the banks to to adjust to that new performance and that that affected the, the experience for the user and that affected our ability to to really allow for that innovation to, to prove itself very useful for the, for the client. Um, so that was very frustrating and, and, and a huge challenge. And I, I can tell you that maybe American Express was our best case and Banco Mex, uh, they were developing bank in Mexico. Those were very, very forward-looking uh, institutions that uh, introduced a lot of that, but still with their, you know, their, their hassles on, on, on how to change within themselves because you're asking them to transform to, uh, to newer practices. Um, second big challenge with the B2B, um, of course, you mentioned very early on when I mentioned that we had sort of two-sided uh, marketplace. 
course, there's a different notion on the sales cycle when you go for a B2B, let's bring a bank, let's bring a corporate, and what expertise you need to introduce there in your sales team to, to recruit one more and one more and to try to reduce the cycle of time, increase the conversion rates. All those things in enterprise sales have one dimension and, or one dimension, one, one obsession, and the kind of leader for that mm-hmm. uh, requires someone that you know has uh, that enterprise level understanding of who to talk to in the corporation, how to move mm-hmm. things along, how to improve the pilot testing so that it gets reduced to the minimum or none. And so, mm-hmm. so it's one sale. And the other one is so different. Customer success on the SMEs at large scale with maybe mm-hmm. you know robots or call centers and stuff like this is a rhythm. It's different, different. Mm. But they both coexist in marketplaces. It's just impossible to disassociate them. The difficulty was finding leaders for that kind of hybrid vision. Mm. Uh, if you put two people that are separate in each one, then they always blame each other for performance. If you mm-hmm. put one, then probably has more expertise on one and deficiency. On the other. Um, so I, I don't really have a, a solution up to today on how to manage those two things in, in the best way because mm-hmm. they have different natures. But more and more now you have people who have lived that experience. The, the whole notion of revenue officer, uh, uh, growth uh, officer, <laughs> that, is, that is now a reality. You see it in developing economies as, as a role that exists. Before, no, you have a commercial guy, you have the marketing person, and, and that is a, a separation that doesn't really work for the kind of performance that you need on a marketplace. Um, so, um, yeah, those were challenges because also of the nature of how people were trained and, and, and the kind of experiences they could bring to the table. And those were thank the two you. I think that I think, Thank you for that. And yeah, I guess, thank you so much for sharing those, sharing those, uh, sharing those, um, insights on, on, on your on your journey. I think one final question on on, um, on Visor and then we can talk about um, what you're working on right now. Um, I guess as, as it relates to Visor, it seems like sales cycle was a, a big deal. Um, and sales cycle is one of the key things that I think um, folks don't talk about enough because we you know we experienced that in, in our journey um, when I was when I was a founder. How did you how did you because I guess sales cycle is also a function of trust. How did you how did you what things did you try to do to reduce the sales cycle, particularly in, in, in Mexico, um, where maybe folks are not as used to buying tech solutions from startup as they would be, say, in, in, in Silicon Valley? Yeah, the, the, as you said, the trust aspect of the sales cycle, you, you do need to have a reputation on a few players mm-hmm. to be able to say that you can start replicating using that reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to credit-oriented notions, it's even worse because that reputation has to carry some time mm-hmm. with it. It's not just mm-hmm. that you've launched uh, or closed the deal and now you can start selling to others. It's not enough because people will say, well, and what is the performance of all that? Has it really made an impact? Is there making a difference? Uh, or are you guys going to be there for the long run? That, that, that they don't tell you, but obviously they're scared. You know, you're a new player with, well, in our case, challenging a very core uh, component of their process, just like, origination and risk analysis. How, how can I put in, 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 in third parties an essential component of this aspect of my business? So uh, in order to break that, I mean, you do need to choose those very first nice names that you're gonna bring into the table. You need to bring extremely good relationships with them. We had, for example, the fact that a couple of them invested in the company, like the Amex deal or things like that. that that's a great signal to the market. Uh, but also, for example, in banks, a signal like that was fair because Amex wasn't considered a challenger. But if you had another bank, investing wasn't a good thing because then the others were like, like what? Uh, am I going to now sleep with the enemy here? Um, <laughs> anyway, it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge there, but uh, you could do that, you know, bring those right good names and, and get them to, to, 
don't ever be shy to ask for a recommendation or to ask for something to be published on your site or for a white paper to be signed. And the only person that's going to say no uh, for sure, it's you if you don't ask, you know. Uh, the other guys, there's a good chance that they will say yes. And it may take perseverance. Sometimes your team doesn't understand how important it is. But once they understand it, once they feel what it feels like to show, because I do it with this guy, now I can do it with you, that certainly is the first step on any B2B replication uh, aspect. Um, the second is obsess with consistency. So mm -hmm. it's the message being understood. It's what we're doing being understood. Since we were doing so many things, I mean, the invoice financing and the analytics and stuff like that, it was hard for people to digest exactly what do you do. And then mm -hmm. the two-sided, the corporates and SMEs. So for the marketing message to be very clear or the, the sales pitch, it needs exercising and constant improvement on the materials so that they become sharper and sharper and sharper. And you can tell that they're becoming better with the cycle time. If the cycle time doesn't get reduced, then the materials are not doing its work. If they get improved, then the communication is flowing. Um, but it's also hard for the team. Salespeople normally want something that doesn't move. You know, I want to be able to sell something that I always know. Mm -hmm. um, so to ask them to adjust the material requires that business development mentality, which comes a little earlier than the just the pure sales mentality. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is hard. That is hard to ask for a team. Uh, it requires maturity that sometimes it's not just about many years of experience, but rather it's about willingness to accept that you haven't yet reached the perfect formula uh, mm -hmm. and that you need to improve on that formula. And so with the pilots, for example, I was obsessed with telling people the pilot should be reduced to the number of days minimum or even not do it. The ultimate desire is that we don't need to do pilots. Exactly. When, when you reach that point where the, the, the trust is there or the reputation mm -hmm. is there or the this formality and how you do things and connect things and plug everything ready to work, all those signals of, of, of formality reduce the need for piloting. Piloting is, is, is risk, right? And you're trying to mitigate risk of not knowing the partner by running pilots. But running pilots cost money for everybody in time. So the notion that pilots weren't just a thing to do, but rather something that we wanted to avoid um, because we built trust elsewhere. This is also the kind of things that you need to convince to a team. You, you don't just let them do and repeat what they were doing all the time. You need to let them know that some of these efforts, we do them while we still don't have the reputation to do without them. <laughs> but that is hard for a team to understand that they may be wanting to avoid doing what they're doing because they have managed to, to surpass that. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. That's, I think that's, that's super, super helpful and, and, and valuable. I guess um, very quickly, can you tell us what you're working on right now um, in terms of uh, substances? What was the vision there? What are you trying to achieve? And then uh, in the final section of the, of the pod, we'll talk about the landscape, the investment landscape and, and what you've seen broadly um, you know, across, across Latin America and, and how it's evolved. But very quickly, what are you working on, on, on um, at, at Substances? Um, what, was the, what was the vision there? What are you trying to, to achieve? Thank you. Uh, well, Sustentis is, um, what happened? After selling Visor, basically, I, I went into discovery mode. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what is the next stage of my life? And, um, and that next stage happened relatively quickly when I started reading how critical the problem of the, the climate is, uh, climate change and social inequity. Mm -hmm. It's beyond my understanding how, how, how pressing and urgent it is. Um, <laughs> So I, I had not understood that. I tell you, I mean, I have always been cautious or, or conscious about the environment and society, but I have never understood that it was so urgent. <laughs> when I saw that, I had to do something about that. And, uh, and it's such a complex problem that to tackle it from a, just a, any perspective is gonna be insufficient. So my, my approach was, where can I really make a difference? Um, 
And in this case, I'm a fan of complex systems. And one of the theses about complex systems is that if you bring information to the system, some things may adjust and, and the efficiency of the system overall may improve. So I was like, okay, how do we bring more information to the decisions of everyday companies around how they, they take care of uh, additional stakeholders? Uh, in this case, the environment, society, and the governments and how they do the, the business. Um, so the answer was, let's let's find if there's something in the world that's about standardizing the way that you communicate these issues. And I discovered that, you know, it was a trend, but it wasn't really clear that there were standards about communication. Anyway, long story short, what we discovered is a, is a very important trend that is accounting is now upgraded. What was originally financial accounting is now upgraded to something additional, such as carbon accounting, energy accounting, okay. social accounting. And this kind of vision is interesting because what it's just saying is we have to organize the data for the inclusion of other aspects of, uh, of how it gets organized. And that's the vision of Sustentis, that's what we're all about. And, um, and we're building this cloud marketplace that provides each individual company its own private uh, storage space where they load all the open banking, open government, open health, <laughs> open everything data it gets organized and available for them in a kind of like blockchain structure so that it's very traceable and reliable. And then you can share it in an open marketplace where you can, uh, just like in an app store, you choose which components of the data you're going to share with which one of your suppliers and you get your services. And obviously the supplier or the solution provider is so much better positioned to service you in a personalized way, in a more efficient way, because they can understand you right away. They can ask you, okay, I want to supply you energy. Well, let me know how you consume energy right away and I'll be able to provide you a ROI or a better calculation. Or if you want to do carbon assessments and you want to start mitigation or, or offsets, well, let me have an understanding of your footprint to start with and I, I will help you out uh, in a much better way. So that was the whole idea and, and this is what we're executing now. Very, very, very exciting. Um, and I, just some questions about the ecosystem. I guess as, a, as, a, as an investor and, 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 and founder, um, an operator within the you know, Latin ecosystem. Um, I guess, what, how, do you, how have you seen the ecosystem evolve over the last five to 10 years now? Because you mentioned very earlier on, for example, in your FinTech, you, know, you didn't have certain infrastructure. Now you do, um, you know, I guess, more investors in the market. What have you seen? How has the ecosystem evolved, both from a positive perspective and then from a negative perspective? Infrastructure as a service in the space of FinTech, so many things were developed to get things going, right? that now they are provided as a service uh, to many partners. So you can certainly set up a shop uh, and your payment mechanisms, your bank account mechanisms, your, your uh, lending mechanism, everything as a service. And, and, and the objective now is more, how, do the, how does the user benefit the most out of all this? Do you package it, do you engulf it? So uh, that, all those things are, are very good. In the not so good, uh, you still have the exits that are not all the way up to uh, IPOs and, and mm -hmm. SPACs. Those other exits that are M&A driven, uh, I still find that the number of buyers is kind of small uh, yeah. or the, the, the corporate buyers that are accustomed to being able to wait for whenever they want to buy. And, and that pushes uh, the sales into a, a situation where you may not have a competitive uh, environment for your, for your bid. And that cannot possibly help you with the pricing uh, and a good exit. You need to have competitive dynamics in order to exit properly. It is not enough that you build a great company with great uh, unit economics. Um, the price will be determined by competitive forces. Um, and that is something that there's still room for improvement. Uh, yes, there is private equity. There is more time to, to extend the rounds, but it's still a dangerous, I think, for many entrepreneurs to, 
assume that all the value will be realized at the exit if you don't have the exit conditions for that. Mm -hmm. um, what other things are still missing? Um, I think most of the other things are, 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 are getting to a point where developing economies can be as interesting as, as any other to, to, to launch or innovate. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I consider a little negative was um, you, you were mentioning that sometimes models get just replicated in regions. Um, <laughs> This obsession with the funds today, especially the funds that have raised very large caps, um, they still love copycats. They still love things that you know sound like mm -hmm. I'm the of that country mm -hmm. and I'm doing mm -hmm. it here. This mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I think that is uh, risk-wise. I understand perfectly the rationale that that is the way that you minimize risk. But um, it, it is so sad to pretend that we cannot innovate for completely radical new things coming out of Latin, mm -hmm. and that there is no room for that kind of adoption risk to be supported by an ecosystem like ours. So I think that the most important thing now is to start migrating from this, you know, I can provide you the entire uh, periodicity of the investment to now say, I can also support theses that are born locally for global expansion, but born here with innovations mm -hmm. that are natural for the region uh, and that don't need to be compared with anything else to be able to be uh, I mean, incredible. They need to be defended upon the, the concept and the structure of what they need to achieve. And, and I think that there's still uh, very little room for that in the way that uh, VCs are doing. Thank you for that. I think that's that's, that's, that's really fair. Um, I guess, so now from, from as, as we're rounding up, if, 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 you know, if you're an outsider, hey, you, you know, you're coming into to LATAM, you're thinking about starting a company in, 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 Latin, in LATAM, Middle Mexico or Brazil, um, how does an outsider plug into the ecosystem um, what are the do's and don'ts that, um, and what are the like unspoken rules? Um, given that you, you know, you've you've operated in China now, you've operated spent some time in Silicon Valley, you've operated. So you, I guess you you you've had that sort of um, diff different perspectives of how business is is being done. In terms of doing business, um, you know, starting a company, operating, expanding into Latin, what what are the hack? Are there any hacks that you suggest? And what are the do's and don'ts um, of of navigating that that ecosystem? I think that uh, international people that have set up shop in Latam have been many, many. Uh, it's a common trend. So it's not <laughs> something that's rare. And that has created generations of now of precursors, right? So that you're not going to be the first one to try to go arrive to a Mexico City or a Lima <laughs> or a, a Sao Paulo and be the one to, to set up shop as a foreigner. So when you arrive, it's so easy to plug into any of the ecosystems of, for example, from the accelerators to to uh, communities of entrepreneurs and, and they will welcome you. They will talk to you, they will you know, bring you right in and, and you will have the, the, all, the, all the steps of what you need to do from setting up shops to finding the right people to be connecting to the right clients. So I think that it's, it's an ecosystem that is very supportive to international uh, entrepreneurs coming to the region. Um, and, uh, and the hacking there is what I said. It's, look all the events, look at all the, the, the groups, the angel investment groups, the, the accelerators, the VC groups, everything that, that will just uh, make your landing a, a softer one. Um, and you should be fine. Um, when it comes to the, the things about, oh, how difficult it is to set up a company in Brazil and then how it is to, yes, it's not like, it takes courage, right? It, it doesn't mean that you just, because you want to do it, you can do it. If you have to put focus and you have to assume that you're going to have a learning curve and, and that you're going to immerse yourself into things that you don't understand very well. Um, if you don't have that attitude, it doesn't matter what part of the world you are, whether it's in China or Latin, you will not be able to figure out a local market. Um, but if you have the attitude, 
things will come uh, and you will find out and then and people will help you. Thank you. That's that's helpful. And um, uh, I guess where where are you currently now? Are you in are you in Brazil or, or Mexico? I'm in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil. Okay. What well, working experience is awesome. What um, what in the morning? <laughs> what what restaurant um, would you recommend for folks to try out? Where you know in in, in Rio? Um, are there any you know foods and restaurants? Your favorite foods or restaurants that people should should try when they when they come out there? All right. Well, I, I live in, a, in an area of Rio called Leblon, and here we have a street called Dias uh, Ferreira, which has wonderful bars and good restaurants. So um, I'm particularly fond of this one called Rainha that has uh, Portuguese kind of food, great bacalhau, good, good uh, octopus, and it's, uh, it's just delicious. And the bachilas, which is little cachaça drinks with fruits, um, are just awesome. And now, if you don't want to do this more like posh thingy of Leblon, if you want to go more hardcore I, I would say that for example for traditional food from the region of my mother that's the north of brazil mm-hmm. uh, go to flamengo and, and a restaurant called tacacá do norte mm-hmm. and then you can try the top you know very much indigenous food of uh, vatapá and acai the right way and all that so those are the kind of things about trying the stylish nice good food and then they're also the the, the more of a authentic regional uh, dishes Thank, thank you so much. Um, I guess finally, are there any, are there any um, uh, big sort of cultural events that you have um, on a, you know, I guess different to Christmas or something like that, um, that you have on a, on a sort of regular, you know, every every year or every quarter or so? Well, I mean, talking for Brazil, the, the, the carnival is absolutely <laughs> amazing. It's an experience where everybody becomes themselves or whatever they want to be that day or those days of carnival and they dance and they kiss and it's just incredible. And in Mexico, for example, the Day of the Dead, uh, it's such a a colorful ceremony and and just the way people are uh, paying tribute to their ancestors and it's such a uh, a beautiful um, procession and and the costumes and the dresses and the colors, it's it's magical. I mean, we have in developing nations such an incredible richness of of tradition so it's a, it's a wonderful experience uh ruben um finally are there any are there any guests that you think would be would be a, a, a great fit for the pod is there anybody or any regions um doesn't necessarily have to be brazil or mexico are there any entrepreneurs any guests that we should we should try and get on the on the pod for for the next couple of episodes wow so many cool people I, i've met in my life um i think a couple of my investors like uh, federico antonia from lvp will be a great guest uh uh, there's, there's other entrepreneur friends that I think are, are awesome. Uh, for example, um, I would I would say uh, mm, mm, so many um, Benjamin from uh, Gabolso or um, uh, Igor from Cora, uh, uh, Tarek uh, from Finelio. Thank you so much, uh, Ruben. Uh, this has been amazing. Uh, really, really appreciate your time. And that does it for another episode of the Globalization of Entrepreneurship podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our website, globeschemers.com. That is globe, S-K-I-M-M-E-R-S.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast and other helpful resources. The podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcasting platform for download. And whilst you're there, 
please don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode of the podcast as soon as it's released.